You're listening to the Food Freedom Podcast, hosted by me, Dylan Murphy, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Food Freedom Podcast explores the topics of intuitive eating, mindset, and body respect to help you create a lifestyle of lasting food freedom. We believe it's possible to feel confident in your food choices and connected to your body. And here on the Food Freedom Podcast, we will show you how. I'm the owner of Free Method Nutrition, a nutrition coaching practice empowering women to break up with diet culture by teaching them how to trust, respect, and feel safe in their bodies. We welcome all foods over here from kale salads to queso and everything in between. Let's dive in. This episode of Food Freedom Podcast is sponsored by our Free Method Recipe Book. It's time that you have a way to create flavor-packed meals that you enjoy that also align with your goal of food freedom. This recipe book is designed to support your intuitive eating journey so you can gain confidence in the kitchen. Complete with recipes that emphasize gentle nutrition, you'll find delicious and simple recipes that allow you to win back your time. Head to freemethodnutrition.com slash recipe book to get yours today. Welcome back to another episode of Food Freedom Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Julie Duffy Dillon, and Julie is really an expert in in PCOS. And so when I was thinking about having a conversation about PCOS, she's the first person that came to mind for me. So welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you, Dylan. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me on to talk about PCOS. I really appreciate it. I am really looking forward to this conversation. So I think really where I would love to start is one, just for you to introduce yourself to our listeners, who you are, the work you do. And and from there, we can kind of get into how you even got into the niche of PCOS. Okay, great. So I am a registered dietitian. I've been a dietitian since 1999. So like over 20 years now. Yeah. And you know, when I was first working in dietetics, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I also knew that I didn't feel like a normal dietitian. Like I didn't really find dieting helpful. I didn't like that whole binary of like good and bad and, and being so absolute just wasn't something that like I used to live my life. And I also should name that I've always experienced thin privilege. So like I never was told I needed to diet. So that's probably another side of why I just, I don't know. It just didn't click for me. And as I finished all the requirements to become a dietitian, I remember kind of thinking, I probably should be a therapist, not a dietitian, yeah. you know? And my mom, uh, you know, was like, you just finished like five years of school. Like, why don't you just do it for like a year and see yeah. what happens? So I did that. And and I'm glad I did because it helped me to just explore all the different areas of dietetics. And, you know, after a couple of years, I realized I still wanted to get trained as a counselor. So I did take a two-year leave of absence from my job. Um, I was working at a big medical center near me and working in pediatrics. And I was really enjoyed working with families and I was working with higher weight kids. And that was an area where I noticed like, oh, in dietetics, I'm not really well equipped to help people with like stress and family dynamics and mood disorders. And I also was like still like helping people lose weight. And so I was like, I'm not able to help people lose weight. I must be doing it wrong. (laughs) Instead of like, oh yeah, 
like the push to lose weight is really what's the wrong part. So, you know, pursuing this mental health degree helped me put a pause and then explore different areas. And that's when I started to really connect with anti-diet work. It's where I was first introduced to intuitive eating. And it took me a couple of years after finishing that degree, working as a dietitian to really say, okay, now I'm an anti-diet dietitian. And I don't use Twitter very much, but at that point I was using Twitter and I was like, <laughs> I called myself an anti-diet zealot because I just felt like <laughs> yeah. such a weirdo. I didn't know anybody. There was like one or two colleagues in the state where I was living Mm-hmm. doing similar work, but that's all. Like, I didn't know anybody else doing this. And, you know, this was before we had Facebook and Instagram. So yeah. like, I didn't know <laughs> anything else. And so I just felt like a zealot. But that's where I started really getting into like food behavior and again, like anti-diet work and putting those two together, like the dietetics and counseling really helped me to find that spot and helped me also to like fulfill how my brain works. My brain is really more wired, I think, to be a therapist anyway. And yeah, so that, that kind of brought me into like securing like, okay, I am going to be a dietitian. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) And I feel like anti-diet work and intuitive eating, I mean, what I've seen even in my work with clients, like. I feel like it's, I mean, obviously it's not therapy because it's, you know, we do different work, but I feel like the approach we use is a very therapeutic approach Mm -hmm. where, Mm -hmm. would you, I feel like is different than what we learned in school, like in our internship and in undergrad, it's like, okay, follow these rules. Don't eat this, eat this. And it's very black and white, which, you know, you and I both know is not (laughs) how food and body and all of that is whatsoever. Right. Yeah. When I finished my training as a dietitian, I basically had this impression that like, I really need to honor my old self because there's a so many parts of me that did not think this was actually accurate, but yeah. there was like this part of me that really was like, just no, just telling people what to do and having that knowledge and passing it on is all a person needs then to quote, be healthy. Or, you know, at that point in my life, I didn't untangle weight and health. So, or lose weight. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, coming from my lived experience as a white person, like knowing what was best for all people like that just is really crappy now looking yeah. back on, but you know, I had a lot to learn mm-hmm. and really having that training and counseling, I fell in love with the writing of uh, Carl Rogers, who is like person centered therapy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Rogerian therapy. It really helped me to, I don't know, get off that pedestal, you know, yeah. like yeah. it's time to get off that pedestal, Julie, and listen to what people were telling me mm-hmm. and let them decide what they wanted to do. And yeah. wow, that was really important, I think yeah. as a dietitian. And I wish all of us had that. And I do think many people do. And I wish that was just honored more, you know, that like, yeah, yeah like we really need to let a person who is coming to you to help promote health, like let them decide what they want to do. Mm. Yes. Cause I feel like again, how we're trained in school is like, oh, we know all the right answers. They just have to follow this plan. It's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. But what we see in like research and the stats with diets and all that is like, no, it actually doesn't work. So Mm -hmm. maybe we need to do something else. Right. Right. There's lots of assumptions that we make with our own lived experience that Mm -hmm. definitely gets in the way of that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And so then how did you shift into PCOS as your niche? You know, I never wanted to work with any medical conditions. Yeah. You know, once I really found anti-diet work, I was also newer to the eating disorder space Mm -hmm. and I fell in love with it. Like I Mm -hmm. really loved talking about food behavior, helping people heal and prioritize that healing and helping them to figure out what was the way for them to do that. And so I was like... (laughs) 
any other medical condition. Like if a person had a medical condition, we would like weave that in. Yeah. But I want an eating disorder recovery to be the primary area for me to work in. And people with PCOS just kept coming in with eating disorders. And yeah. you and I both know like how we were trained to work with PCOS. It was like basically only dieting mm-hmm. and only restriction and too bad for you, I guess is yeah. basically the message if you had an eating disorder and PCOS. Yeah. And I, I just wasn't okay with that. So as I looked into what options we had as dietitians, I kept coming up empty handed until I did find some people who were willing to look into other areas outside of weight loss. And they took me under their wing and helped me to, to just learn some different ways. And, you know, really, honestly, then it, it became, you know, some of it was these tools, but then also gathering practice-based evidence because we didn't have research to support this and letting people tell me what worked for them and what didn't. And then I just kind of started gathering that information. And then the people I would see later, I'd be like, well, this worked for this person. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think? Do you want to try that too? And so I got to see, you know, after 10, 15 years, you kind of start to appreciate what helps a lot of people and what helps just a few people. And I kind of just prioritize it that way. And what I found is that so many people with PCOS are uh, traumatized by diet culture. They don't access healthcare because of how pervasive diet culture is in PCOS care. And so my skills with eating disorder recovery came in handy. And I mean, it just, I felt like a passion for that then too. Mm-hmm. Like there was an unmet need and I wanted to help meet it. And so that's, that's kind of where it started. And, you know, one thing I've just like anything else that when a person starts to specialize, a big part of how that grows is people just start telling their friends. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. that's just how it just kept going and going. And then randomly, and I don't know when this was now, maybe 2015, I got a phone call from a producer in Los Angeles who said they're producing a reality show in my town. And I live in North Carolina in this Uh really small town of like, I don't know, maybe two or 300,000 people. It's like a really small town. Yeah. And they're like, we are looking for a dietitian who specializes in PCOS and eating disorders. You want to be on the show? And I was like, huh. (laughs) This is the only time I'm ever going to get this question. Yes. Ever. <laughs> I think of this show. Like. I know. I'm like, well, like, and it was like the best way to ever be on a TV show. And, yeah. you know, some people got to know me from this. And so they may not know this, but like those people who may be listening to your podcast who knew me in elementary school, high school, college, they will be floored to know this because like I was someone who was so not into public speaking. I literally had to do trauma work over my fear of public speaking. Mm-hmm. And so like seriously, like five years of therapy yeah. because of all this, like the, the feelings my body had after doing public speaking. So going on like a reality show on like a major met- network was not something that I ever had in mind, but I was scared to death. But then I also was like, you know, I really want people with PCOS to hear that they don't have to diet. Mm-hmm. So I don't know many people who are talking about this right now and happen to live in Greensboro, North Carolina. <laughs> so I think I need to do this. And I'm glad I did because it did, it opened up so many doors to just meeting other people all over the world with PCOS and get that message out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you need to add that to your professional bio, reality TV star. <laughs> I don't know if it's reality TV star, but just like yeah. reality TV experience. Yeah. Yeah. Not something that I ever thought I would ever put on my CV, but it is there now. Yeah. That is amazing. (laughs) But I love that. And so for people listening, because one thing I think that, you know, I feel like 
most people, and and maybe not, I feel like PCOS is a diagnosis that people have at least like heard of most of the time, but maybe there's confusion around like, what is that? Like, okay, I've heard that, but Mm -hmm. what is that? What does it mean? How's it diagnosed? So could you tell us a little more about that? Sure. Yeah. It's a very confusing diagnosis because it is a diagnosis of exclusion. Like you basically get diagnosed with it when they're sure you don't have these other things. Yeah. But, you know, with the name polycystic ovarian syndrome, like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of assumptions based on the name that lead to some inaccuracies too, but it is actually an endocrine disorder that starts in the brain. So it doesn't even start in the ovaries. It just affects them. And it results in a set of symptoms that I'm not result. It's it's a set of symptoms that result in a hormonal imbalance. So the way it kind of, it unfolds, it ends up affecting people differently. And so that's why it also can be really confusing because someone can have PCOS and not have cysts on their ovaries Mm -hmm. and be like, well, maybe I don't have it. Like this ambiguous, uncertain time is a really common part of the, the PCOS experience. But, you know, it's something that because of this hormonal imbalance, there's some common experiences and the current criteria to diagnosis, uh, diagnose it rather, includes someone having two out of the three of the Rotterdam criteria, which one of them is some kind of like amenorrhea or irregular periods, some kind of clinical or biochemical sign of high antigens like testosterone. And then the third one is those quote cysts on the ovaries, which are not really cysts. It's just multiple immature follicles. And so someone again could have like two out of the three. So there is a lot of different experiences that people have with it. And, you know, whenever I talk about PCOS on a podcast, the thing that I want to make sure everyone hears is that PCOS is not something that someone causes, you know, it's not caused by higher weight. It's not caused by eating the wrong thing. And it is something that we know that is passed down through families. So, you know, because it has to do with periods um, for many people, I don't know about you, but you know, a generation ago, my family was not talking about periods that much. Yeah. Like to get the information about menopause history in my family tree was like pulling teeth. Mm. Cause I'm like, I just want to know when I'm going to go through menopause folks. Can you help me? <laughs> and you're like, why do you need to know that? That's so personal. I'm like, because it has to do with me. Yeah. <laughs> but, question, please. Yes. Just what I, yeah. Like part of me is like, when is my last period? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm counting down. (laughs) Yeah, at 46, I am counting down. But um, anyway, so I think part of the PCOS experience is that, you know, a lot of people, we're just not talking about gynecological Mm -hmm. and hormonal imbalances, especially a generation ago. So a lot of people don't even know they have it in their family tree if they have access to the biological family tree. And so you can kind of tell if there was infertility, but, you know, not everyone with PCOS experiences infertility. There also is a, a lot of overlap with type 2 diabetes. So if a lot of people in your family have type 2 diabetes, it's another way to kind of know. But yeah, so that's PCOS in a nutshell. It is a very like multifaceted, confusing kind of experience and it's um, a chronic condition. So, you know, sometimes people like on Instagram like to show that they're like, I cured my PCOS and I just roll my eyes yeah. because you can't cure it. You can manage the symptoms. Mm. And so it is a chronic condition, which the thing that's like, I feel like such a Debbie Downer when I say this, but I also hope that it's like in a way, like existentially like a freedom because it is a condition that you can't cure. And because it's chronic, it is always going to get worse. But that's not because of like a fault of your own. It's because it's a really crappy condition, Mm. you know, it's poorly researched too. So 
So, yeah. I love that you said all that though, about, you know, it's not something that you caused. It's not something that you're making worse because I feel like the assumption is the opposite of that where Mm -hmm. people think they caused it. And I'm curious, like, do you see in with other healthcare professionals and maybe ones, I guess, that don't work in the anti-diet space kind of preaching that message of whether they're outright saying like you caused this, but do you feel like there's messaging? Basically what I'm thinking is like, what gives people that thought of like, like, is this my fault? Did I cause this? Yeah. Well, oh gosh, that's a really big like (laughs) thing. (laughs) Because there's so many different parts that reinforce that message. Mm-hmm. And yes, a lot of our colleagues, a lot of dietitians reinforce the idea that there's like this level of individual control over the symptoms. And there are certainly, because there's so much variance in PCOS, like there are some people, if they cut out whatever, they feel great forever. And there are some people who have access to a lot of different kind of things that other people are not going to have access to that are able to manage it and not have as many symptoms, if any. And for most people, cutting out something long-term is just not going to be sustainable, nor does the research support it. And so much of, especially in the United States where I live, and I think you do too, Dylan. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you know, there's like this individual kind of philosophy about health. Like it's our individual responsibility. And if we aren't healthy, we're hurting the rest of us. When Mm -hmm. what I really appreciate about how PCOS is experienced is that when a person has less power in the world, if they're experiencing marginalization because of the type of body they live in or their financial accessibility to like healthcare and Those are things that affect the health so much more than how many carbs you're eating or how much you weigh. And, you know, something like oppression because a person lives in a black body, that is something that we know causes inflammation. We know causes higher insulin levels. And those are two parts of the PCOS experience that universally that we're trying to manage with PCOS is like, Mm -hmm. how can we prevent oxidative stress? Well, I think a lot of us as dietitians, because we're so focused on behaviors, we mm. think of like, well, let's cut out sugar or yeah. dairy or gluten and that'll do it. Well, I'm like, no, can we just like allow people to like walk out of their house and not be shot? Like mm-hmm. that's actually going to help inflammation yeah. a yeah. lot more. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's one part of it. And I also think there's someone who I talked to on my podcast a few years ago who has PCOS. Her name is Shavise Turner. Something she said has always stuck with me. And I feel like it's the best way, succinct way to say this, that doctors and other healthcare providers are just so married to the weight loss paradigm in mm. PCOS. They just can't let it go, even though there's evidence that pushing people to lose weight over time makes their health worse. Yeah. Yep. In the short term, it seems to make things better with PCOS too. But even like these big, huge studies on uh, PCOS that we have, like there's like a 2018 evidence-based guidelines that were released that explored all the different diet options for PCOS. And even in there, it says there are no diets that have been found to help most people with PCOS to promote health. Hmm. And But unfortunately, again, because they're so married to the weight loss paradigm, the next sentence was, so just pick any. Oh my gosh. Like literally that's what it says. Like, <laughs> Isn't that I'm horrible? Say, so don't diet. <laughs> so we need to do better. Or yeah. like, I don't think people really appreciate when I say people, I mean like, you know, people all sure. over the world. But I don't think we appreciate how recommending a diet. It's not just like this flippant kind of like no big deal. It actually can be harmful. Yeah. And we have been able to show and research that it 
is harmful to most people long-term. So I think that's a part of it too, is like, well, you know, if it's up to the individual and it's not this really, it's not hard to recommend a diet and we see short-term that it does something, well, Mm -hmm. then let's just recommend it because there's no harm, no foul. And no, we really need to face a lot of our own anti-fat bias to really hold all that. And I know for me, holding my anti-fat bias and helping people try to recover from an eating disorder, that was the cognitive dissonance. Like that was the most excruciating, painful six mm. months of my life. I remember yeah. like when I was trying to hold both of those yeah. <laughs> and when finally it kind of like flipped and uh-huh. I had to just really hold on to that bias that I was holding and walk away from that like weight centric kind of way of doing things. So yeah, again, that's why it's like a hard answer. Cause it's like For such sure. a big, big thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, we live in such a weight centric world, the schooling that I feel like most dietitians and healthcare professionals in general have is very weight centric. So it's hard for people to go against that. But at the same time, you know, if we're in this like helping profession, we want to help people. So why would we not want to like get curious, see what actually can truly help them, which like brings me back even to your whole story of like seeing gaps in PCOS work. And even what you're talking about, like wanting to be a therapist. So then you like went to school and got education there and work as a dietitian. Like, I feel like we should get curious of like, how can we best help people? And we know diets don't help them. We know that, Mm -hmm. you know, cutting these things out short-term maybe will, but what if we think about like where they'll be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Mm -hmm. I agree so much. And I think what's helped me to really learn how to do better, which I'm always studying how to do this, but like is really listen to higher weight people about their experiences. And Mm -hmm. so if you're listening and you're a healthcare provider and like, ah, what do I do with this? Like really listening to people and more than just one person, you know, listening to people in higher weight bodies about their lived experience and believing them. Yeah. You know, and something I found with PCOS, and I know this is generalized through to people without PCOS, but people with PCOS are told that they have to diet. They're told they have to limit carbohydrates or sugar. They have to limit their calorie intake and they need to lose weight, you know, through these means. And what I found by asking, you know, how much are you eating? You know, what does your eating look like that they were doing these things? Like most people I talked to, they were following the advice of their doctors and dietitians who were telling them to cut out things. Things, it just wasn't changing their weight. And they felt like hell, <laughs> you know, they felt so oh, yeah. horrible. And then they'd go to the doctor and they just weren't believed. Mm-hmm. And so then they, the and doctors would, so many people have told me this. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this still, but like so many people would tell me like, yeah, I went to the doctor and they told me to eat this calorie level. Yeah. I'm eating half of that. Yeah. Like they didn't even ask me what I'm eating. I'm eating half of that. And they're like, not believing me after I heard that, you know, 20, 30 times, it was like, well, there's something here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? This is not just one person's experience. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And I have a feeling that's, again, that's, I don't think that's just in PCOS world, but I think mm-hmm. that's probably in so many different areas. Oh yeah. All across. I feel like the medical field. Yeah. So then, cause I see this with people, even without PCOS too, like if their doctor tells them you need to lose weight, you need to cut this out, you need to stop doing this. 
and then they come see you, like, do you notice it's hard for people to like go against what their doctor has told them? Or do you feel like it's free? Yeah. Tell me, mm-hmm. tell me about for that. sure. Yeah. And this is, I think this is a really important area to like study and listen to what people are experiencing because it's going to vary tremendously on what the person, like this person with PCOS who is, you know, usually by the time they would come to see me, they're in a place where like they're at diet rock bottom mm-hmm. or they really have been rejecting diets for a long time, but then got diagnosed with PCOS and they're kind of stumped, you know? And there's so much that makes us complicated because we know someone in a lower weight body is going to have more access. They're going to be treated better. Mm. And so moving away from diets, like there's a part of it that can be like, Hey, look at this evidence. It doesn't support it. But yeah. then there's like this, like real life stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Cause like, what is it like to go to the doctor and still told that you're not acceptable. Mm. And what ends up happening, unfortunately, to a lot of people that I talk to is that they just don't go to the doctor. Like mm. it's it's not abnormal for me to talk to someone with PCOS who hasn't gone to the doctor for 10 years plus mm-hmm. and just so scared to go and then feeling ashamed that they haven't gone. And I'm like, you're just avoiding trauma. Like I yeah. don't, I wish there was a way to like lift off that shame burden that you have on your back right now, because yeah. you're just doing what you need to do to like not experience more trauma. And, you know, if only people who provide healthcare could appreciate that part, then maybe they would reconsider how they interact with humans in higher weight bodies. But yeah, that's that's my thought on that. So Mm. yeah, that's so good. And I I mean, I see that so often with clients, like, I mean, and I love how you put it, you know, tie trauma into that because it is, it's so traumatic. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. obviously if you have a choice of like, well, I'm not going to go to the doctor because they always tell me I need to lose weight and they don't listen to me. Like that's frustrating and isolating and all of that. So then for people listening who do have PCOS, and I'm sure a lot of them too are probably shaking their heads like, yes, my doctors told me to lose weight. My doctors told me to cut this out. What would be tips that you would want them to hear or tips that they can, and I know that's, you know, probably that could be a year's worth of work with you kind of thing. <laughs> so even, you know, kind of like touching the surface, like what would be tips that you would want them to hear? Yeah. So the first thing that I always want people to know, I know I mentioned already, but I, I'll say it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's that important is like, you didn't cause the PCOS mm-hmm. and losing weight won't cure it. Cutting mm-hmm. out carbs or whatever they're telling you to cut out won't cure it either. And it may work for some people to do those interventions to help them feel the way they want to feel in their day to day. But for most people, it doesn't. And so it's good just to hold on to that, to know what you want to do next. And then the other part of it, you know, I want, I always encourage people with PCOS to, if they can, to prioritize healing. So healing your relationship with food, whether it's from an eating disorder or a diet culture, but prioritizing that healing is something that we know can help your PCOS because some research in the last few years has found that the more someone weight cycles, the more likely that they're going to experience binge eating. And you know, how does weight cycling happen? Well, that's chronic dieting. And so whatever tools you can find that help you avoid that kind of trigger to diet or to avoid weight cycling is something that we know long-term that can help like prevent the oxidative stress that happens with PCOS and to help your insulin levels and likelihood of a higher blood sugar. Like these are things that can help with that. And Mm -hmm. so the way to start, I think of two things. One is like really sit and recognize and sift through your diet history. Mm -hmm. You know, like use your own data that you've collected over your lifetime and hopefully to help like all the different parts of you, like to recognize that like, okay, yeah, diets didn't work for me. Like, is, is it time to like turn that page? 
And another side of that is let's make sure you're eating enough. And I don't care what is in the enough, like just like eating enough food, period. And that's why I think prioritizing healing and making sure you're eating enough is where I would encourage people to like spend the most time. And, you know, eating enough food is something that will allow your muscles and your brain and to like, just be able to rest Mm -hmm. (laughs) and to be able to use food more effectively. And along with that, you know, there's a lot of stigma in the PCOS world with taking medications, Mm -hmm. sometimes with supplements, sometimes not, but there, especially with medications, like doing quote, unnatural things, you know, to help manage it. And I really wish that didn't exist because, you know, healing your relationship with food and adding medications and or supplements, if you need it is something that I highly encourage because it basically brings your insulin levels and your inflammation to like how the rest of us are, you know, (laughs) you know, something that like people who are judging that experience, they're not like living with these like super high insulin levels and don't feel exhausted. And these constant carb cravings that are like primal urges to eat. And so having tools to help lower that just so then you can feel like more at home in your body and feel more awake, you know, is something that I also encourage people to do from the beginning. Hmm. I love all of that. And because really all of that sounds like a person just journeying through self-discovery of like, what is my history with diets? How do I view food? Do I, you know, have certain foods that feel good and bad and you know, how even has my diagnosis of PCOS impacted my view of myself? And because that's why I love how you keep saying like, you didn't cause this because I could Mm -hmm. see that being something that just runs on repeat in someone's head of like, this is my fault. How can I fix this? How can I reverse this? Especially like you said earlier, if there's messaging out there of like, here's how you can heal your PCOS. And so I think it's Free, I love that everything you just said, because none of the tips that you gave, which I wasn't expecting this, but none of the tips you gave were like, well, you should, you know, try eating this or take this food out or do that. Like it has nothing to do with that. It's like really starting at the root of like, let's look back through your diet history. And, and I think through there, what could be helpful for people is, you know, through that, they may realize like, wow, I think I need to bring someone else into this journey. Maybe I need to work with a dietitian or a therapist or, you know, whatever may be accessible or make sense for them. And maybe they realize they don't need to, but I think that self-discovery can be a helpful starting point for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, the experience like from a lot of people who hear like those first recommendations, they're like, so are you saying like, I just like have to sit back and not try anymore? And I'm like, no, like, first of all, no one should have to like try. Yeah. Like if this is all you can do. And I, and I don't mean this in a, I'm not trying to minimize it, but like mm-hmm. if prioritizing healing is as far as you're going to go, then that's your decision. Yeah. And I have a feeling your life is pretty complicated. And so that's all you can do. And, yeah. and that, and also that may be enough, you know, mm-hmm. but they're also because of diet cultures, like binary, like, mm-hmm. you know, you're either in or you're out. Yeah which that just is wrong. Like there's lots of things that people find lots of tools that they connect with for them as an individual that help them to manage their PCOS symptoms in the way that are sustainable for them. You know, that's a big part of my food peace framework with PCOS is like, Mm -hmm. is exploring different tools that are not rooted in diet culture that also have like a really intentional layer of autonomy, (laughs) you know? Um, And so then for you to decide what works and what doesn't for you. And so, yeah, like I 
also want to just put that in there too. Like, it's not like a person's going to be passively just letting their life go by and they get to choose that if they want, but it's still an, a very active process to reject diet culture and exploring tools that can help your PCOS. Yeah. yeah. And it's helping like people put themselves in the driver's seat of their health journey. Mm-hmm. Like I'm going to mm-hmm. do what makes sense for me. Because also if, you know, thinking about, you've talked about stress, like if trying all these crazy diets and adding in all these things and like that might end up causing way more stress than sitting back, like just taking an audit of your life and your diet history and and everything that's gotten you to where you are. And if that's where, you know, the journey ends for you, that's fine. Like, I think it's just mm-hmm. fine letting people find what works best for them and then not judging them for that. Right. Well, you know, what's really cool too. I was, I'm rereading Sonia Renee Taylor's book and I, yeah. I had it with me, but I know oh, it's in the other room. I'm reading it with a, a book club uh-huh. and there's a quote in there that it's something I've been thinking about, but of course, Sonia Renee Taylor on her book is the body is not an apology, Yes, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's something I've been thinking about, but she put in such great words. I'm like, that's it. That basically yeah. by reading rejecting diet culture and radically loving yourself Mm -hmm. helps like everyone else Mm. because, you know, by examining your own anti-fat bias, whether it's anti-fat bias or internalized fat phobia, like examining that and radically loving yourself and the way that she's describing. Yeah. yeah, Like it basically helps other people then to have experienced less oppression. Mm. So I'm like, that is the coolest part of this too, is like people with PCOS rejecting diets. Not only is it going to help yourself, but it's going to help build a community that Mm. allows for more people with PCOS to feel at home in their body too. Yes. Yes. Which is so good. And so needed because I feel Mm -hmm. like there's probably not a ton of people in the niche of PCOS that are like you that, you know, practice from this anti-diet, like help people find freedom in their diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I I could see like that waterfall effect of like one person taking a stand and that impacts other people around them. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, there's more, thankfully there's more providers now <laughs> that are rejecting diet culture. Oh yeah. I'm so glad, but yeah, like we, we need to come together and mm-hmm. there's, um, you know, so much of like the recovery process feels really individual and I just don't see it like recovering again from either an eating disorder or diet culture. It's not something that can be done on an individual level to mm-hmm. me because our world still hasn't recovered or even yeah. like recognized it has an issue with, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's with dieting. <laughs> yeah. And so like, we really need to rally together. We need to like lock arms and work together to do this. And that's the only way it's going to be able to change things. Mm, I totally agree. Well, the way I love to end interviews is asking guests what their favorite food memory is. So kind of speaking gears, but I mean, even in talking about diet culture, but I just see, you know, a lot of clients and people that I've talked with, I feel like diet culture loves to take the fun and the memory and the culture and just everything out of food. And so I love hearing people help to put that back into it and hearing a favorite food memory. So, okay. When you first said it, I was like, Ooh, what am I going to say? But I actually, this is something that happened. Let's see. I was living in North Carolina. So I was a grown up, but it's, it was a really important memory for me because I was in a place where I was just starting to work with eating disorders and trying to really come to terms that diets don't work and they're harmful. And (laughs) I had this experience where I went to Cold Stone (laughs) 
This is so <laughs> random. I haven't talked about this in like 20 years. I went to Cold Stone and it was a beautiful day. It was probably springtime. So it wasn't quite hot yet where I live. And so yeah. I had like the windows down in the car and I had like the Cold Stone like cup. It was like on my lap, like as I'm driving. And I had the birthday cake batter, oh, with, like yeah. the cookie dough. Like, yes. so it was like all these flavors that I, those were like two of my favorite flavors. And so I'm eating this and it's like this perfect day. A really good song came on the radio. I wish I knew which one. But then all of a sudden I see this like guy on a unicycle go past me and I was like what is today like this is like what everything is this is like a moment and oh my goodness as I was just thinking about it forever I don't know I think about things for years yeah. and I remember thinking about it and I'm like you know there's something about that moment because it was like regular ice cream and I was and again, my like privileges, I never experienced an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Like I live in diet culture, so I got that crap. But like, <laughs> I also live in a thin white body, so I don't have those oppressions. And I was like connecting with how good this was to yeah. taste and the experience. And like, man, if I was like scared of this food, it really would have gotten away with that like yes. And that was really formidable to me. Mm. Like, it was just like, I want everyone to experience this. Yes. And I didn't know how that could happen, but I was just like, this needs to be universal. Yes. Oh, I totally agree because it's so freeing, like to be able to sit Mm. there and enjoy that ice cream, no strings attached. You don't have to earn it. Like you don't have to feel guilty Mm -hmm. and it can be real ice cream. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. Yeah crazy whatever that doesn't even taste like ice cream. Yeah. This is before even like the halo ice cream. This was like, this is when skinny cow was like all the rage. Yes. And I think I remember writing a blog post about it. And I remember thinking that like, if this was skinny cow, (laughs) this would not have been as good. Uh, I may have missed that like unicycle person. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You'd be so in your head about, you know, Mm -hmm. counting everything. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was thinking. Like how much space worrying about food takes up in Mm. our brain. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, so much. Well, I love all that. That story is going to stick with me, especially the unicycle. That's I know. <laughs> so where can people find you? And if, you know, people listening who have PCOS want to learn mm-hmm. more about how to work with you, tell me more about that. So the best place to go is my website. It's juliedillonrd.com. And there you'll find access to my podcast called Love Food. I also have a PCOS and Food Peace course for people who are looking for more tools to reject diet culture and PCOS. And you can also find like where I am on Instagram and things like that. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much again, Julie, for taking time for this interview. This was so great. And I'm very excited for all the people who are going to listen to this. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Food Freedom Podcast. Make sure you're following us on Instagram at Free Method Nutrition for more inspiring content on food freedom, intuitive eating, body respect, and many other things. If you're curious how you can support our podcast and help it to reach more people like you, we would love if you would take a minute to rate and review the show. We drop new episodes every Tuesday, so make sure you subscribe so you always catch our latest conversations. See you next episode. Are you ready to master your mindset and take your health habits to the next level? We created our free method shop with those goals in mind. In our shop, you'll find our Freedom Journal and Elevate Affirmation Cards. Our Freedom Journal is a mindset and gratitude journal that will be the perfect addition to your health and wellness journey. Complete with journal prompts and reflection questions, this journal will help you turn your goals into lasting habits. 
Each journal page is broken into five sections. Affirmations, gratitudes, what you're learning, what you need to let go of, and what you need to hold on to. The perfect addition to our Freedom Journal are our Elevate Affirmation Cards. These affirmation cards come with 31 mantras, prompts, and encouragements to elevate your relationship with food and body. Head to freemethodnutrition.com slash store to order yours today.